Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Dr. Vanessa Drew Branch, Assistant Professor of Human Service Studies at Elon University, speaking on the topic of public health and social policy through the lens of child welfare. Hi, Jen. Thank you for having me today. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for joining us. To help the audience get to know you a little better, could you tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do that has brought you with us today to speak on this topic? Absolutely. Um, So I have um, a degree in psychology, social work, and my doctorate degree is in higher education. And so my career, my educational career has really been focused around how to help different um, groups of people with a special emphasis on social justice. Um, I owned and operated a small private practice um, in southwestern Pennsylvania for five years um, and really developed a, a desire and a passion to continue to educate other professional helpers, mm-hmm. um, which led me back into the classroom. Um, one of the major emphasis of the work that I do in the classroom is to focus on how to give voice to marginalized groups of people. Um, the One of the cornerstones of social work is social justice. And I think oftentimes our profession has... Um, met some challenges with how do we integrate social justice into practice. Um, And so it has been my professional teaching mission to help new practitioners um, really develop their social justice lens. Um, And so we can be not just increasing diversity um, or having conversations around diversity, but also really focusing on social inclusion, social and cultural inclusion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Would you say that it is integrated into your kind of your approach to things to have some real talk around cultural competencies and growing cultural intelligence in particular when, you know, the folks are going out and they're having these pretty deep relationships with folks? Right. And so I think that um, my, my overall perspective on that is to develop a cultural lens that is, um, you know, multi, multi-framed. I think that oftentimes how we are taught to practice in the helping profession is we have a very Eurocentric, um, heterogeneous kind of concept of how to live, how to know, how to be, how to interact with other individuals. Um, and that just doesn't work for most of the people that we work with. Um, and so for me, it is to challenge people to develop depth in terms of how they are seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not just how we practice, but it's how I approach people in my sphere. And I use that very loosely. So, um, and I think that this has been challenging for all of us. Like, I really don't connect with the terminology cultural competence because I feel like then there is a goal or an endpoint in the concept of competence. I more connect with the terminology around being culturally responsive because there is no end to being responsive. You're cons- it, it's fluid, right? You're constantly being responsive to the environment, to the stimuli 
And we change culturally every day. There's something new, there's something exciting, there's something different. And so a part of my sphere in that has been to help um, the young professionals that I work with and even the people in my sphere of influence, you know, my friends and family, to begin to really challenge them to see where there's value in difference and how do we include and be responsive to that difference in a more um, holistic and inviting way. I like culturally responsive. Is that your uh, branded branded term? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that that has come from, you know, years of reading literature, um, particularly around black feminist thought. Um, that's what I'm really immersed in right now um, that really challenges and gives a good analysis of the current systems that we're interacting with. Mm-hmm. So whenever, you know, I'm not a child welfare practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I bring to my research that I'm interested in looking at is how accessible are these systems to us? Not just are they available, because the services in child welfare are available. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how open to human difference are they? Um, and you see a lot of times of black and brown bodies overrepresented in these different institutions, criminal justice system, the um, special education track or system, um, because the services are accessible, but they're not inclusive. They, they aren't understanding the worldview and the different types of cultural expressions um, that come with being black and brown in this um, current cultural setting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, to help our you know, listeners kind of have a more contextualized idea about what child welfare is. How would you define it broadly? So broadly speaking, it is what it says, right? It is to provide some oversight for the welfare of children in our culture, right, in our society. Um, If we are talking in terms of vulnerability, uh, and, and social workers oftentimes come from this approach of, Who is the most vulnerable in the room? So one of the questions that I often ask students whenever they are um, looking at, you know, research assignments or they're trying to select a social problem that they're interested in is, okay, what community can't breathe in this scenario, right? Mm -hmm. What member of our culture is the most disenfranchised? And children oftentimes pop up on that radar because of their level of control over their lives, right? They have very limited control over where they live, who they interact with. And so they, because of that lack of control, they score high typically on that vulnerability. And so when we're thinking about child welfare, we're looking at their ability to, you know, live well lives in terms of wellness. That's not just physical but that's also emotionally, socially, culturally, economically. How well are they allowed to grow and be and become in this culture? And the child welfare system is supposed to ensure or protect that, uh, that experience for kids. Digging down a bit more, and you touched on this a little bit um, as we were getting started, but what and, you know, how, what does the child welfare system look like within the context of black and brown girls? Well, I think it's just like any system. It is a, um, and I'm going to try to be as, uh, you know, generally sensitive around this topic as I can be. Uh, but most people who interact with me know I'm a straight shooter. So, um, 
you know, it's an inappropriate measuring stick, right? It is assessing um, a cultural group with using the wrong measuring tools, right? The systems, like many of our systems, were built on um, very Western Eurocentric white ways of knowing and being and expressing themselves in the world. And so whenever you take a, you know, culturally, ethnically different person and you begin to assess their expressions of life, assess how they show up in the world, you're going to get dysfunction. You're going Mm -hmm. to get a, well, they're maladaptive or there's something wrong because you're measuring them using the wrong measuring stick. And so... For me, the child welfare system um, isn't really an appropriate measuring stick for currently the way it is structured, the way our system is set up for kids who are from ethnically vulnerable minority groups, um, because we are still coming into understanding that there are different worldviews. And I talk a lot about worldviews in the work that I do. There are different ways of knowing and are being Um, and expressing yourselves that are culturally grounded. And if your measuring tool, and in this instance, the child welfare system, Mm -hmm. is not acknowledging that different worldview, right, as being valuable and, you know, solid and grounded, then you're going to always mismeasure the experience or the expressions of black and brown girls. And so they are even more vulnerable when they're put up against a system where they will always be seen as maladaptive or dysfunctional. So could you speak a little bit more about the cultural and gender disparities for the populations served? So oftentimes you see, um, and I pulled some statistics from um, North Carolina, and some of the um, highest ranking reasons why children are um, involved in the child welfare system for North Carolina specifically are neglect, child abuse, um, or drug abuse by a parent, and caregivers' inability to cope. And so for me, those being the top three, um, to me that's an indication that there's a failure in some other system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes you can link neglect particularly to instances of poverty, And we know that there is a phenomenon that, you know, African-Americans historically um, and increasingly so we're seeing this trend with um, second generation Latino Americans, not so much the immigrant population, but their kids who are experiencing high levels of disproportionate poverty. And so whenever we start thinking about why people neglect their kids, right, why is this occurring? Oftentimes it's because of their exposure or experience with poverty. When we think about, you know, drug abuse, and that has all been linked to some, especially in urban settings, um, to once again, the experience of poverty, right? The experience of some level of community level trauma um, or economic, you know, um, economic struggles within that community. And then the last one, you know, the inability to cope. Yeah, if you're traumatized and you're stressed out as a parent, I mean, let's consider what we are asking parents to do in oftentimes these very tough economic and social uh, settings. And Mm -hmm. so because of the history around poverty with uh, black and brown communities, it is no wonder that you see disproportionate numbers of black and brown girls 
and boys, but girls specifically, involved in the criminal justice in the child welfare system mm-hmm. uh, because poverty is one of the main indicators for, for involvement in the child welfare system. So given that, you know, access, so you, you talked a, a little bit about it's great that this resource is here or, you know, it's great there are public, at, you know, public schools in the neighborhood, but the access point, Right. And, you know, what are the interplays between the institution of child welfare, the institution of education, and the institution of poverty for black and brown girls? So I think one of the things that, as I was considering some of these questions, that really um, came up to me was a quote by, uh, and I'm going to quote a lot of my my folks, um, but Cornel West, Dr. Cornel West, where he said, you can't lead us if you don't love us. Mm-hmm. And you can't save us if you don't serve us. So I think there is, you know, these systems, and I'm not sure how, you know, I'm going to date myself in this. But when I was growing up, um, there was this brand FUBU, For Us, By Us. Um, these systems aren't created by us. These systems aren't created for us, right? And so our inability to function or to code switch in order to be successful you know, is not, it's not, it's not inappropriate, right? It, it, it makes complete sense that you see so many black and brown girls struggling in the public education system because the system was not created for, to accommodate the cultural and social expressions of black women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see in the news, there's all kind of controversy about black women in their natural hair in school, you know, that's a cultural, social expression for black women. And so if you run up against a system and you're not able to, as I call code switch, right, you're not able to make that assimilation shift or you're not willing to make the assimilation shift, then you're either pushed out of the system or you're socially ostracized. And you see a lot of hostility between black and brown girls and women running up against these systems because, you know, you come to a cultural uh, kind of standstill where it's, I'm not going to switch anymore. I'm not going to shift anymore to make the system comfortable. The system should be accommodating me, should be accepting of me. And so you're running up against, I think this is a very challenging time um, because the, the, intersectional self of black women is emerging in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And um, these systems aren't really ready or haven't, don't appear to be ready for um, black women showing up, brown women showing up as their full cultural sexual selves, right? Um, and so it has been very challenging um, because you this generation is very different than previous generations of women who were more willing um, for a lot of historical reasons to play the game, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And to be more, uh, to go along with the flow a little bit more. And there are a lot, like I said, there are a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, They did not raise a generation of women who were willing to do that. Right. And so where there's some good uh-huh. to that, right, right. There are also some challenges to that. Um, and the systems are just, I think, trying to catch up and or are resisting that level of change. So, you know, one of the themes that has 
you know, emerged through probably every single conversation that I've had with folks is what do the intergenerational impacts look like? You know, you have kids, young, young black and brown girls who are by disproportionate measures taken into the child welfare system. And then, you know, if you look at what put them there, you know, you spoke about the neglect, um, which is also linked to poverty, which is also linked to a lower access to education, right? So what, how does that manifest in the intergenerational way? And so, you know, I have um, really been doing some reading and uh, some thinking around how cultural PTSD shows up, how community PTSD shows up. Right. And I think that there needs to be a conversation, a deep conversation about how woundedness shows up in terms of parenting. I will say specifically mothering. Um, I talk a lot with my, you know, group of friends about toxic mothering and where that comes from. Um, because I don't think that we've given credence to the social impact of the war on drugs not just on the economic success of black women and and the black community, but how that trauma has been carried out, right? How the decimation of communities really placed a community level trauma on black women, because think about it, right? You know, when you have a significant amount of, you know, mass incarceration, what that does to a community that leaves communities without whole intact families that leaves. And then there has been, I think something, the numbers I last saw was like a 400% um, increase of black women being incarcerated, right? Drug related, poverty related um, issues. Right? And so what, what effect does that have, did that have on, I'll call the middle generation, right? So older millennials, um, who grew up in an area where you didn't have the sense of family was always shattered or was not as stable as it was for previous, previous generations. Now, fast forward, you have those of us who are in the mid thirties, early forties, who've never dealt with the trauma, but we are raising kids. Right. And if you think about what, how PTSD shows up, right. Um, it would make parenting very difficult. And so I think there has to be more conversation about how trauma shows up. And there has to be a legitimate conversation about how community level trauma is impacting one's or a community's ability to parent. You know, one of the major cornerstones of Afrocentric uh, kind of paradigm is this collective culture. But when the collective culture is broken down by social policies and um, cultural attacks, we'll call them cultural attacks, right? Um, what, what is the experience of trauma, right? And I don't think we have talked about that. You know, whenever I recently completed a chapter um, where we were, my co-writers and I were redefining or trying to redefine some of the historic uh, tropes that have been late, that black women have been labeled. So, you know, the crack whore, was really big in the 80s, the welfare queen, really big in the 80s and 90s. And, but there's no conversation, right, about one, how those kind of tropes have 
impacted the identity of black women, right? And two, what trauma was a result of what was happening during those periods. Um, and so, you know, it's intergenerational trauma, excuse me, I think has to be addressed before you can talk about any um, kind of healing, uh, because that's where I see a lot of the problem stemming from. I'll put a little pin in it, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more um, about the terms toxic mothering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is, it was a pretty profound bit of information to sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the other piece is, you know, you were, you brought up some of the stereotypes that black and brown women have been given over time, and one being welfare queen. White women are the population that hold the most investment in the welfare programs. Um, and I, th- I think that's important to note, right, that the, the stereotype is just that, that it's without evidence. It's without um, any type of care or consideration for how that brand is going to affect, you know, a community. And it's, you know, applied in ways just as a tactic, you know, to round back the attack on particular populations. Right. And so I think that, you know, you have to recognize that all of the, all of those, you know, the sapphire um, stereotype, the uh, Jezebel stereotype, which just kind of describes black women as being sexually available or sexually loose. They all served a purpose, right? And so whenever the Jezebel kind of sexually loose and, you know, uh, aggressive trope came around was when really around the time of slavery when and reconstruction, when black and brown women were being raped and being and their children were being used as you know extra slaves right mm-hmm. um and so there was a lot of we had to validate the sexual exploitation because otherwise it's inhumane right and so understanding that every trope that has been given to black women serves oftentimes e- an economic purpose right? Um, If I can label them as the welfare queen, right? I can justify reducing the welfare rules, which happened in 1996 with um, Bill Clinton's passing the um, TANF temporary, you know, where we really cut down and reduced the availability um, of welfare benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I justify that by saying they're misusing, right? That's a, there's an economic purpose behind that, even though there's no evidence of that, right? Um, and I don't have to address any of the historical, um, you know, kind of exploitation that has happened, which has caused poverty to be uh, a constant in the Black community, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can you know, we have to sit with, they, they serve a purpose, right? Um, and so until we really get to what is the purpose, right? Um, and sit with it. I think a lot of times Americans just want to fix stuff. 
We just want to fix it. Um, but we just need to give birth to why at this point. Right? Mm-hmm. What purpose does um, do these serve? Right? Um, particularly whenever we see that there's evidence that they're not accurate. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but so then we have to start questioning, well, why? And be okay with sitting with the why and not immediately trying to fix. Um, Because I think that one of the problems comes into let me fix it, but I really don't understand it. Um, And so when I look at the statistics for black and brown girls um, involved in the criminal justice system, you know, I think we're not even ready to ask the why, right? Uh, because then we would have to sit with it's serving an economic and social purpose. So lovely segue into the one of my um, points of, as, you know, I was doing some reading and, you know, it came across a headline from the nation. Uh, I think the issue was back in May, um, to give proper credit, make sure that's Absolutely. <laughs> citing correctly. Uh, the title of the article stated, for women of color, the child welfare system functions like the criminal justice system. How would you respond to that? I would say that they're, they're the same system. So I think we, we, one, need to understand that the system was not created to accommodate anyone <laughs> who is not the stereotype dominant culture here, right? So, and, you know, it is white, male, you know, Christian, you know, upper middle class, English, your first language, I could go through the list of, you know, privileged or dominant categories in the U.S. So if you can fit most of those, right, the system, it works for you. If you, the more vulnerability or the more subordinate categories, right, the more intersectional oppressive categories you're a, you're a member of, um, the system is going to disproportionately not work for you. Right. And so they are the same system Hmm. to me. They're not they're not different systems. So the fact that black and brown girls aren't doing well is no shocker. Right. Um, And I think that in every situation, unfortunately, I follow the dollars. Whenever you go to see who what families can um, represent themselves in court, what families have the resources, not just financial and economic resources, but also the social capital in order to protect their kids from the criminal justice system. It's not black and brown girls. Right. And so while I have a um, great colleague, Dr. Susan McCarter at uh, University of uh, North Carolina at Charlotte, who does a lot of work around the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, her work just says, look, you can have two kids who commit similar comparable crimes. It could be the same crime. Right. And based on their race, they will have disproportionate outcomes. Right. And so now if we are just male, right? Now, if you increase their vulnerability by gender or you increase their vulnerability, maybe it's a trans um, kid of color, any more vulnerability added to it is going to make their interaction with that system that much more tenuous. Um, Any of these systems. And so I don't see them as being different. I see them as, once again, they're not FUBU, 
right? They're not mm-hmm. for us, by us. They don't value the expressions and the experiences. And so therefore, there's always going to be this tension. Um, and so that I, I don't see them as being different. You know, earlier I put a pen, I'm going to unpen it, the toxic mothering. And, you know, there, there was another point, you know, breaking the cycle, how do we break the cycle? But I feel like that given the context provided when you use those terms, that might very well get to the breaking the cycle type of conversation. Right. And so um, oftentimes in classic psychotherapy literature, moms are blamed for everything. Like <laughs> we're the ills of the world. And I have four children. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I always make the joke that um, upon graduation, you're going to probably get a car and six sessions with a therapist, right? Because I'm, I'm bound to mess you up. Um, but, you know, I think that there has to be more conversation about where that's coming from, right? Toxic mothering to me is moms or female motherly figures, because it doesn't have to be a biological mom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, female motherly figures who, for internal reasons, right, are not able to provide the nurturing care support, and I mean holistic support, that another individual needs in order to grow into being, right? And I use very general terms because the more we define it, the more Eurocentric it gets, right? And I'm really trying to open up the field for different ways of knowing and being. Um, And so, you know, toxic mothering for me and how I, I personally, my mom is not toxic. So I, I don't want to label, you know, that I do want to say I've had many conversations with um, women across the lifespan who have really struggled with moms who are not well. And because of their, you know, their diminished well-being, are not able to provide that holistic support, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when I get them to start telling their story, you know, or their interactions with their mom and they're sharing, you know, what their mom had told them about their past and, you know, that intergenerational thing we were discussing, mm-hmm. oftentimes their moms have dealt with unimaginable trauma. Like I sit and I'm thinking, well, I don't know how she got out of bed every day. And having been a therapist for some years, I'm thinking, well, yeah, she's traumatized. No, she can't mother you. No, she cannot show up as her full, authentic self. No, she can't provide you with nurturing and support and wellness because she's not well. And that's not to make excuses for behavior. That is to come into some sense of understanding of what racism and sexism or the intersection of the two, which I love the term um, massage noir, right? What that has done to black women and how it impacts every area of their lives, including one of the most sacred in Afrocentric culture, um, which is mothering, you know, and so it it becomes one of those conversations where you have to acknowledge trauma. You have to acknowledge how racism and sexism and that interplay, right? And I would include classism in there. And for, you know, my queer 
uh, trans folks, I would, you know, you throw that in or my differently abled folks, I throw that in there. Right. And how those experiences um, have led to social isolation and social trauma that some women are unable to pick themselves up for. So they're showing up, their, their, their bodies are there, right? But they're not living in any state of wellness. And once we really start having a conversation about how the community has perpetuated these traumas on groups, and black women are just one group. You know, I, I could have the same conversation about native and indigenous women. You know, increasingly so, I would have this conversation about immigrant women, right? And, and it will be interesting to follow, particularly the immigrant children who will grow and who have experienced, I think, immense discrimination and trauma in this current political setting, how this will impact their overall experience with parenting moving forward. And will their children be overrepresented in the child welfare system because we have not addressed the community societal level trauma um, that was inflicted upon them. It can't just be one particular, you know, it can't just be the harmed group who is engaging conversations. We need to get everyone who walks about into the conversations to, you know, create that change, you know, to address the trauma, to address, to help ask the question, what can I do to help? So I think that there's, you know, I have two kind of responses to that, two kind of reactions <laughs> to that. The first is, you know, there's a difference between being an ally and being an accomplice. I like allies. They're cool people to hang out with. We can go grab a drink after this. But you're, you're, you're not really, you're not active. An accomplice is someone who's, who's ready to, to ride with me. Right. An accomplice is someone who says, not only do I see you and I acknowledge what's happening to you, but I'm willing to risk some of my own social capital, leverage some of my own privilege in order to help give you voice and to give your experience voice. You know, I think we've gotten settled and complacent in this allyship. Right. But allies are just people you grab beers with. They're not going to be ride or dies, right? Um, they're not leveraging any of their privilege. They're not sticking their necks out. Not necessarily, right? Um, when you think of an accomplice, they're in the car with you. <laughs> if you're mm -hmm. robbing a bank, they're, they're driving your getaway car, you know what I mean? Just to kind of use a crude analogy. And so I think we have to level up, right? Um, I have to level, leverage the privilege, the social privilege that I have. You know, we all exist in spaces where we are oppressed and privileged. So while I have some of those social categories where I identify as being oppressed, right? So I'm an African-American or I refer to myself as a black female, right? But I also have some areas where I'm privileged, right? First of all, I'm an American citizen, right? I could leverage that privilege for my immigrant folk, mm -hmm. right? I am cisgender. I could leverage some of that privilege for my trans folk, right? I can be an accomplice in areas where I own some privilege, right? Um, and I don't think that that happens enough, right? I think we have just gotten complacent with allyship. Um, the, the second part of that is, is I think that we just need to have you know, courageous conversations. 
you know, and be able to tell people you're not showing up for me. And I think that um, we rely too heavily on the marginalized or the oppressed group to call out injustice. Um, But we also have to understand that the courageous conversations don't often happen from those who could be allies or accomplices, wherever you fit, right? Because they are giving up something, right? You know, I think of the Freedom Riders, and I have that picture on my wall of, you know, um, some African-American women, female riders. But there were some white women riding, too. Mm -hmm. And they were just as much physical harm as the black women who were arrested. You know, I think of some white accomplices or some male accomplices who, you know, are really feminist in nature, but they're always at risk. I mean, of social risk. And so I think we also have to have some courageous conversations about, yes, there is some risk to be an accomplice, which is why a lot of people don't risk it. Um, But real change only comes from when you shift out of allyship because we can't get complacent there. You are very right that being an accomplice can be uncomfortable. Being an accomplice can mean that you're willing to give something up. And, you know, those two things, you know, if you're sitting in a very comfortable spot, that, you know, that can be difficult to, um, to just let it go. And I don't think that, and I try, um, so for a majority of my career, my teaching career, I've taught at PWI, so predominantly white institutions, and I've taught diversity or advocacy, which, I mean, in and of its nature is assertive in, you know, you got to do something, right? Um, And around, I think when it was about five years ago, I really sat in the space with some of my white students and was like, you may be giving up a lot in order to do this work, right? I, I make the joke and I try to make it light where don't go home on over Thanksgiving break and talk to Uncle Fred about what you're doing in class with me, right? <laughs> I mean, and it's a joke, but people can lose their families over having these opinions um, and not just having an opinion, but actually putting action behind it. Mm-hmm. Right? They can lose their jobs. You can be socially blacklisted. I mean, and I don't think that we take enough credence to say this is why a lot of people don't do it. This is why it's easier to blame black and brown girls for their involvement in the child welfare system than to look at the child welfare system. Because if I am critical of the child welfare system, right? I could lose my job and losing my job is providing for my own family. And so a lot of people who are within the system have kind of waved the white flag and said, I'm going to do the best I can to help individual people, right? Individual families or kids. Um, But I'm not going to challenge, I'm not going to rock the boat too much because rocking the boat will, I will inevitably have to choose and give up something. And most of us aren't in that space. Um, So I think it becomes, you know, I don't want to, um, it's necessary for real change to happen, but I don't want to minimize the risk, you know, that accomplices 
have Mm -hmm. because it's a high level and and remember this is not just about race for me this is you know it is about gender it is about you know gender expression and sexual identity and it is about all of those things and so you know accomplices show up in many different forms and so what my risk as a black female who is an accomplice for we will say um the lgbtqia community I'm still risking something, right? Um, because that can be very socially isolating, you know, um, when you come from a family who maybe or a community that's really steeped in religion, um, who has very restrictive beliefs around those issues. So you're standing up and being a champion for, you know, difference can be very socially isolating. And so we have we can't ignore that. We can't say that that's, okay, well, we get it, so don't do it. But we do have to acknowledge that that's a very real experience for people. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing insight and expertise and um, straight talk. (laughs) I like it. Um, You know, to kind of wrap this up a little bit, as mentioned beginning, the theme of the podcast is learning, lifting, and leading social equity for and by black and brown girls and women. And that is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that happened at Shaw University back in October. Um, And out of that, I'm wondering if you can make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls can be learning, lifting, leading to help create social equity. So I think that, you know, we have to, one, acknowledge that black and brown girls are not a monolithic community. So how we experience um, oppression is going to be different, right? Um, But there is one unifying theme is that it does exist. And so I think that how we learn, lift, and, you know, really generate social equity is by showing up as our full selves um, and risking it all in order to do that. Um, And then having, hopefully, creating a tribe of accomplices who can circle around us to support, promote, and encourage. Um, I think another way is that you have you know, women doing their own emotional, psychological healing work and making that the cultural norm, right? Making the journey towards wellness a part of, you know, our black girl curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. Really saying, how do you develop your identity in wellness um, so that the voice that you project is authentic and genuine and not steeped in trauma, right? Um, and then I think that we always call attention. You know, I, I highlighted for a part of Sir Turner Truth's um, speech, um, Ain't I a Woman? Because I think that, you know, our experiences are unique. You know, black women have always worked. We've, since we made it to these shores, we've always worked. And so, you know, the concept of the working mom and the struggles, we're like, well, shoot, we've been doing this since we got here, right? <laughs> Who, who hears our cries, right? Who takes into consideration our experiences? And I think it's not until black women 
are able to feel confident enough in our own culture, right? Like we're, we're done drinking the oppression Kool-Aid, right? That we really begin to show up as our full authentic selves. And I think there is a, a theme emerging there ever so faint, but it's there um, where you can't learn lift and, you know, command some level of equity if you don't show up, if you're afraid to show up. And I think most of that comes from doing, you know, some healing work. And so that has been my, my hope is that women do their work um, so that we can show the next generation how to do their work and how to better manage and command social equity. Thank you. Um, very much enjoyed our conversation. Um, and uh, again, I appreciate your time and your contributions to this good work. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Dr. Vanessa Drew Branch, Assistant Professor of Human Service Studies at Elon University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.